Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. I'm the guest host, Simon Nameby, and today I'm going to be talking to the features editor of Rugby World, Alan Dimmock. We're going to have a, a deep dive conversation around uh, medicalization of, of uh, rugby, so painkiller use, performance enhancing drugs, and, uh, and, and that kind of area. So Alan has, has done a, a series of uh, long-form investigations into into various different areas and uh, I think Rugby World has always it always excelled in doing in-depth features and, and Alan's taken that to another level with the uh, the long-form investigations he's done a lot very wide-ranging uh, and, and deep dives into sort of thorny issues and, and he's, he's he's picked off some really good subjects and I think he's a great person to speak to about this about this area which doesn't get talked about all too all too often so uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you Alan how are you? Yeah, very good thanks for having me always always happy to blow my own trumpet. <laughs> well uh, I should also mention you're a, an award-winning journalist as well but I, I know you're too um, you're far too modest to, to mention that yourself but do you want to give people a, a quick bio uh, of yourself um, a little bit maybe about your because you, you obviously play rugby and and uh, and coming into journalism yeah well I, I think played rugby is fairly charitable I, I was a Played some age grade, age grade stuff for for Scotland when I was younger, and was in and around a couple of pro, the, the two pro teams in Scotland for a very brief period of time. Never came to anything because you know I was obviously wasn't as good as I thought I was, and uh, you know came to sort of spurned a lot of things earlier in my life. Sort of played with the university, but never gave it a go. And then when the rugby thing all sort of ground to a halt when I was twenty one, I realised. I needed something to do with my life, and I'd always liked the idea of going into journalism. So um, I didn't quite know what that meant at the time. I just it sounded nice, and you know, you speak to a lot of people, go, oh, what a great life that is. So went back to university, uh, ended up doing a master's degree down here in in, in London, and uh, the, started writing about my experiences at the same time. And was very fortunate to be spotted by the editorial team at, at Rugby World who asked me to do some guest stuff and like a leech I just latched on and that was that was me they couldn't shake me off they couldn't burn me off and uh, that was 2013 I'd started full-time with with them after a year of, of sort of working part-time with them and got my foot in the door and sort of worked my way up from there and it's it's a you know you mentioned there that there's a long history and I think that's what people like about Rugby World is they're you know they'll they approach the game in a slightly different way. They have to. It's a monthly publication, but also it's they've got the freedom to explore things in a little bit more depth. And when I got in there, that was one of the things that really I wanted to to explore. And to be honest, they've been great ever since. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think my editor will appreciate how frustrating I could be because um, a lot of the time I'm a dog chasing cars. We, had, we actually had a features meeting this morning about a couple of issues to come. And they've made the fatal error of saying, have you got any other ideas you've got? And I unfurled this scroll of just nonsense ideas that I've had because I'm just running around just thinking of, of different things. But to be fair, we get the freedom to explore. And a lot of what we're going to talk about just now is is from sort of the trust to be able to go and look at a subject. And, you know, you say investigations, sometimes it's it's not quite that because you can only really scratch the surface of some subjects. And one of the things we'll talk about later is how these things need constantly refreshing. But it's just a good opportunity to start a lot of conversations. I think um, it's, it's been uh, the, the events that have been going on with the pandemic and, and various different things. The, the world's moved at a very rapid pace over the last couple of years. And one of the things that's been quite interesting is this sort of re return to long form stuff where, you know, like long form podcasts and and I think a lot of uh, journalism had sort of become a bit uh, in in the mainstream had become a bit, um, you know, soundbite and quick message. And it's it's really good to see people that you know these are the kinds of subjects that you can't just scratch the surface. You have to do a deep dive. And when you pr provide that to people, they really love it, and they, you know they really get stuck into these things. And it's great to be able to read a, a really substantial piece. So why why did you just on that side? I, I mean, I think. The, the the clicky stuff, you know, people will have their views on that. But I, 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 you know, the reason we got the reason I got into this game was because of the of of the big news. But everyone wants to see breaking news. That's that's sort of the lifeblood of, of of sports journalism, and that's why we got into it. But I think you're right in that 
the idea of slow news is sort of coming coming more into the fore now. Is people sort of the idea of revisionism? It's okay to go back and reanalyze things, and that's I think there's actually as much fruitful ground there to explore as there is for all for all the and let, don't get me wrong. I mean, I all of my heroes in this field are the guys who get the big headlines, and those are the things that we all want to do. But sometimes it's it's good to wait a few years and go back to that and go, all right, see behind that. What what else can we talk about and explore? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so why did you decide to? I, I, I've, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong here. This was, I think, this was one of the first big, big pieces you know you did to this depth. Why, why did you decide to take this on and, and look at doping in rugby or medical issues in rugby? Yeah, well, it's funny. You, I started in 2013, and I just got a, I got a notification today saying it was seven years ago, because when I was younger, it was a case of I'm excited. I've got this my first big, big long read in the magazine, uh, and so I, I took a picture of it, and my phone reminded me today that it was seven years ago that I did something on doping, and I think what inspired me to look into it was because it's one of those things that you hear people talk about, but there's never any depth. You know, it's it's all a lot of rumor or hearsay or. You know, I heard that, you know, oh, there's this story I heard down the pub or this after dinner event I was at. After the after the speakers were done, we were all in the bar, we were talking about this. And some was saying, oh, there's that rumor about so-and-so or there's that rumor about how things are done differently in another country. And it's, I always, I mean, those things, your, your ears always prick up. But when you hear things like that, you think, I wonder how true that is or where that rumor has mutated and where we've got to that. And also because... It's funny, having come, having very briefly and unsuccessfully flirted with uh, elite rugby, when you, you hear people talk about, and one of the things I'd always had when I was younger was, because my natural weight, playing weight, was relatively low, but for a front row forward, it was the thing was you always have to put on weight. So people would always ask me, you know, if you got to have junky people, I drink with someone in the pub, they'd be like, oh, so they wanted you to put weight on, like, you know, ever taken any... Anyone ever offered you? And the thing is, in my experience, I hadn't. And I wanted to know if that was a novelty or whether it was just, I got interested in the idea of, because we always, it's it's comfort, and, any, and this is a broader piece and it's completely off topic, but we're in an age where it's almost, there's almost comfort in conspiracy. The idea that there's some something greater at play that's secretly controlling things because it's hard in our lives to admit that sometimes it's just chaos and that things are floating around and that individuals have agency. And and so I got interested in the idea of exploring that idea of omerta and uh, conspiracy and whether there are bigger pieces at play there, but also just to look at the nitty gritty because I didn't want to be one of those guys. And so many years after the fact that I, I've turned into it, but I didn't want to be one of those guys who talked in general terms. So even if it was just focusing on something that was so minute that only I gave a shit about it, to be honest, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, you can extrapolate that out and look at more interesting things. And whether that's successful or not, I mean, I'm going to look back. We'll all look back on things we did when we were younger and go, I could have done that better, more professionally. I could have found uh, a better way than it. But the process of looking at that first one is something that I still do to this day. And there's it's just the idea of finding the kernel of, of an idea and going, right, What's the best way of laying that out so that it's interesting? And then if you find anything out along the way, great. But the other thing as well is that you've always got to remember that there should be balance. Because if you go in with preconceptions, which is what you do with the with the rumors and the and the myths and the, the tales, then you know it can be a very stunted piece. And whether or not it's successful or not, that's for other people to judge. But you know what, it's it's always a very interesting thing to do. It's easy to get in the weeds with it though. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you sort of mentioned the Amerta thing and the conspiracy theory, and, and it is a bit of a, a shadowy world. Did you have any sort of trepidation about going into that area? Because, you know, if you start asking certain questions, some people can shut down. So you, you, you might have gone in there thinking, oh, God, is anyone even going to talk to me? And if I do uncover something, could this sort of, you know, be a, a very hot hot topic to handle? Did you have any concerns? Well, it's it suppose, so as I said earlier, and and must say, you know, it's like I, I'm, I'm little me. I'm not toppling uh, organisations or, or uncovering grand conspiracies or anything. But the process is always the same when you start on a on a subject like this. And the key really is, is you know, I wouldn't say that I'm a particularly smart guy, but the process is always the same. Is is it doesn't matter how little I know. In fact, sometimes that's a benefit. You need to find the right gatekeepers 
to introduce you to the people who do know what they're talking about. So a lot of the time that's the process is identifying the right people to get. It's finding the in first to the subject matter. And with something as thorny as as doping, where at the end of it you come out realizing that potentially there is no grand conspiracy a lot you know, if if there is, it's incredibly well hidden hidden. Um, but a lot of the time and particularly when you look at amateur and uh semi-professional uh, players that have, have come unstuck with the matter. It's a case of they have their own agency, uh, they have their own lack of Ill information to bring, to bring to bear on the situation. You know, ignorance is a thing that you keep butting up against when it comes to ta- the cases of field, uh, field doping tests, uh, for example. And then if there's any Machiavellian element to it of people trying to deliberately manipulate the system getting that first gatekeeper is going to be pretty bloody tough. And, you know, certainly, I mean, I respect won't name any names, but the amount of people that I approached at the start of this going, someone, I've a very good source of mine has said, you said this at an event or somewhere else about your experiences of this or someone opening a boot in a car park and offering it out at gyms. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, no, 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 I was just exaggerating. Or, oh, no, no, that's, I don't know what you're talking about. And so there was, you have to get past that element of things. It can be very worthwhile, but, um, you know, that's also where you realize you've got to keep checking yourself with that and going, if I'm excessively hunting that one story that I've got, why do I believe so much in that story? And that's, again, that's where you can fall, you can get into the weeds with it. But the kernel of it really started with, the idea of how real is this and if it is omerta and there are these things there are these stories going on where do you start and bloody hell that's that's a hard one to pin down so where did you start, where did I start? <laughs> without naming names obviously but where where, where did you start so chasing down a few stories uh, that you'd heard and oftentimes if you you hear a few i mean even the last few years if you hear a few stories it's only fair that you try and find the the truth to it. And if it is a case where, for example, something goes to their individual union and a a case has been passed on and it's being investigated, it's only fair that you leave that be until the investigation is concluded because you don't want to accuse anyone of anything that they're innocent of. And and certainly the the lawyers at our our company would be very unhappy if that was the case. But also just out of respect to the individuals, because what you really want to do is tell the story. And actually, to be honest, right, we can talk about all of this sort of stuff. But the bit that's really interesting and the bit that needs to be addressed is if you do find anything like that, why? Why does that exist? And what what is the context of that situation? And why is it that people feel that they have to resort to this? So oftentimes that's when it's the saddest thing because you come across the the ignorance of the amateur or the individual who bought a supplement online that didn't quite work for them, or they bought something with the intention of rising to the rising to the top of the lowly level of the league structure that they're playing at, or the sadder ones are when you go there are all these failed tests and you see these you see these studies being done and it's because it's for aesthetic reasons and it's got nothing to do with performance now you'd imagine that at the very top level of the game, there are all those same concerns, but it doesn't seem quite as unnecessarily trivial. You know, why did you fail this test? Because I wanted to look good. And so you want to spread the education around it, which is why, as I said at the top there, it's really important to have a balanced approach to all this. And one of the things why I think we have a lot of freedom with the magazine, with Rugby World to do these, to look into these kind of subjects is because you hope that you'll be able to deliver something that's obviously you want it to be as interesting as possible for the readers and as formative as possible, but you want to be able to tell the human story within it. Instead of just going, here's this outrageous thing that happened and so-and-so is really sad about it and here's here's me in the room with them whilst they're crying. That's great. I mean, sure, there's room for that, but you hope that you'll be able to deliver the human element. And sometimes you question the way you're going about it because, you know, we've... We've done things in the past where we've looked at problem gambling or alcoholism or um, issues that people have got with their personal lives, and it's you don't want to be exploitative with it, and that's the fine line that you've got to tread. But uh, yeah, it's a fine line to tread, but it's a really important issue that if if it never gets talked about in that kind of depth, then those core issues about why people get into it never get addressed, and you know people become a bit unaware of it, and so I, I think. Um, 
it's pretty crazy to look to look at some of the stories we've got in the news now around doping, you know, with Russia being chucked out of the Olympics. Some huge, huge doping stories. But I, I think I, I'm fairly sure it was just at the time you started to to write that to, to look into this. There were one or two things that happened. I think one was there was a, a French uh, player called Benazek, and he came out and uh, made a statement, uh, accused a few people uh, of 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 what he called medicalization. So it wasn't just performance enhancing. It was like the, the rush of drugs in general. So it could be painkillers. It could be um, anesthetics, that kind of thing to allow people to play plus performance enhancing. And I think around about that time, um, Sam Chalmers uh, was sort of, he'd failed a test. He was an Academy rugby player in Scotland and failed a test and was sort of put up as a bit of a, uh, a warning story to people about what could happen. And that was sort of treated in that way that he had bought something on the internet because he wanted to get bigger because he'd had feedback from his coaches. So um, there was quite a lot going on around that time. Wasn't there when you first started to look at it, which was pretty big news at the time. No one had really ever come up with anything like that. Yeah. And, uh, and I suppose the thing is as well is that firstly, it, you've got to look at the resources around when you're looking at subjects like that. So actually when world rugby decisions are made and there's hearings uh, or, you know, you can go on the RFU website for disciplinary hearings, for example, you can find the minutes of all these, these hearings and you can find the explanations. And that actually was the, was actually quite a fertile ground to, to, to look at the motivations behind. So for example, with, with the um, example of Chalmers, looking at the statements that were made for his, his reasons for why it happened. And uh, when, when they went to World Rugby and that decision was made was really telling because that's where all the information came out about how, how he'd how he'd how he'd got uh, got the supplements that he was using and also uh, his motivations behind it were sort of detailed in it. you know they were in black and white they were exactly there there exactly as he'd said it and you could see what the motivations were and the medicalization one's the interesting one right because again the ignorance is I mean, I wish that was the only example you could get from someone buying a supplement online um, with the express purpose of getting bigger. There was, oh, Christ, it's been a while since I've looked at the looked at the numbers, but oftentimes you'll see the huge amount of people that that, that fail for that and they go, oh, so I didn't know, and that's why, and that's why every month in the magazine we've got something in the back with a, a certified uh, nutritionist who hammers again and again and again the idea of clean sport. Uh, you know, supplements that have, have reached rigorous standards because, yes, they're more pricey, but there's a reason why <laughs> they're safer. That's And we can get into later about the amount of research that goes into things, and certainly it's something that I, I wanted to revisit when we came to the idea of painkiller use, when we decided to come back to that and, and look at products that were people using and try and actually look ahead rather than just looking at the current situation. But... The medicalization one is an interesting one, and when Benazesh made made all those headlines, it, again that was a bit of a prompt because it was a case of going, well, hold on, where's the substance to this? What can we look at? And you know, there are people that have spoken on the record from players in France from the seventies talking about using amphetamines, for example. And it's so there's a, there's a through line there. It's about tying it all together and going again. How much is hearsay? How much is is anecdote and to be fair he's he's never wavered on this um so it's it, it's looking at that and looking at the subjects around it and going also if that's the case at this one year if that is the case is that the same throughout the sport because you cannot pigeonhole an entire sport and that's one of the things that you're always butting up against is is you don't want to make it all seem like everything's the same it's one homogenous game now there's a lot of things about rugby which i'm sure you've talked about in other podcasts that can feel homogenous but you want to see you want to go in depth and go make it very clear that you whilst you're looking at this one area it's a very detailed and very landmine <laughs> filled uh, terrain that you know you've got to whilst you're focusing on the one one aspect of it it doesn't necessarily mean that it ties up exactly with the other yeah, I mean, just just for example, laws are different in different countries. You know, the rugby's played the world over. There, there could be so much variation, and certainly, certainly culturally. And I, I suppose if we sort of start with that little bit, that medicalisation, because I think a lot of where this came from was sort of it. It can be. I don't, I don't know for sure, but you get creep, don't you? So. Uh, you're really sore, you're really battered from playing the game. You start taking some anti-inflammatories and, you know, you're taking these anti-inflammatories and then someone says to you, oh, there's this thing as well that you can, and you can get creep 
So when, once you start taking one thing, it can sort of creep through. And I think the medicalization and the, the painkiller thing, because you did a whole piece on that, is really interesting. And for me, that would be interesting because I would say that would be the most widespread thing that happens in rugby because it, it, it is legal to take painkillers. And you just see it a lot. I, I worked at, um, actually in football. Um, in, I was doing sports massage and uh, it was a pro club. And the players would just like literally every single day be coming in for painkillers and the physio was really fighting hard about not giving them to him, but you, they were literally going out. I think in the piece you wrote about, it was like they were being handed around like Smarties on a Frisbee, like the, the well, amount of painkillers that were going out. So. That was exactly why I wanted to look at it was, well, it's something that I'd always been aware of and you're right. Cause I was fascinated by the idea. I mean, you know, lots of different, again, this is an insight into how I think is there's lots of different elements to it. And I, I remember thinking, you know, there's all this stuff when, John Alomu passed and um, we were talking about, you know, and I was speaking to some medics about uh, the genetic makeup and who responds differently to painkillers and, and and that kind of thing and, and how we highlight which players, you know, if any international players, any international teams even 10 years ago were looking at the signings they were making and going, we need to treat this player differently to the other in, in the medical room or the way that we, you know, if you're going to tailor training programs, do we view the same thing? I was interested in the idea of uh, medical screening, particularly uh, in terms of uh, organ health when players come to the union, which is something that we look at with young players with their heart health. And there's a cutoff point for that. And why is there a cut? And anyway, I was I was doing all this and I was talking to a former player at a sevens event and he was like, oh, well, the painkillers one's really interesting because, um, you know, I remember when I was playing for my team, X professional team, and before the game, the doctor was going around with a frisbee full of painkillers, and I thought, Jesus! And it got it got me. That was that was the starting point, and I was like, well. And he actually said to me, I think you should look into this. And I was like, okay, cool, that's absolutely great. And I was thinking as well, and I was like, one of the, oftentimes one of the things that we're guilty of is we're a magazine that represents all the different levels, but often we oftentimes we focus very very much on the top level. And the reason why I thought it was important to dig into that more is because. We've all played amateur rugby where after the game you're popping pills like sweeties afterwards because it hurts to get out of bed in the morning. Now, the the hurtful truth that we can't get around is the fact that no matter what you do, you're gonna hurt in the morning and you have to learn how to deal with that. But how do you how do you mitigate that and what is our relationship like with analgesics? And so I started sniffing around and it was again it was one of those where I spoke to some former players and they were like, Not a big deal. I I've, my body is in bits. I can barely walk today, and you know what? I do it all again. And I was like, absolutely. But informed choice has got to be a part of this, and therefore let's let's tick the informed box. So it was a case of looking at how serious it is, what the long term repercussions are, um, how much people rely on it to just eke by at the end of their in, end of their careers, or even gosh, at the start. We look at some of the serious injuries that people are dealing with now. At the start of the career, and at no point was the approach to go get rid of them all completely. Uh, what together? Let's rip up the book on how how we how we treat the medicalisation of rugby, or even to even to say that this is all terribly wrong because there's a horrible conveyor belt out there, and as soon as one mangled body goes out one end, the fresh body comes in the other. There's an element of that, but I didn't want to approach it and say this is exactly the way. Again, it was just to have the discussion around it. So it, it turned into a bit of an odyssey, and again there's so many different strands that come off this and it's hard to do in just one feature i mean we ended up doing five thousand word piece in the magazine a couple of online pieces that came off it and then when we reached the four year mark um in 20 2020 i realized that so much had changed or the view on it had changed where even if we see stories coming up every so often and you hear tales of players who talk about being addicted to painkillers for example and there's the whole slippery slope there with our relationship with opioids and certainly we know what impact that can have on society at large and I wanted to look at that and revisit it but not just do it the exact same way so when we came back to it four years later it was a case of going if we accept that this is an issue that we're going to have to live with that elite athletes are always going to have this relationship with pain and we're going to have to look at ways to try and deal with it or work with it. Let's take that idea and move it forward. So say, in the coming years, what are the conversations going to be about with painkillers? What is the world of CBD use or cannabis use? Or what is the level of real-world research being done on that right now and its relationship to sport? 
what are what are the alternative approaches to training that we could be looking at or snc what are the alternative approaches to um how we train our minds and what is and it was really fascinating and I'd, I'd love to know which way you want to go with it because there are so many different elements of that that you could go with for example people saying so often in professional sport we go for the nuclear option with an injured athlete where it's like you're going under the knife buddy and it's is do we always have to go down that path and are there different ways of thinking about our relationship with pain? And to be honest, this is something that other people can relate to all through the levels and outside of elite sport, to be honest, because how many people do we know that have got back issues? And what does that relate to? And why do they have that? And how do they deal with it? How many people do we know that have got aches and pains when they walk around? And it's something that can be revisited again and again, and it'll completely change. And that's why I find these things particularly fascinating. No one else might. But the, the reason is, is if we're going to accept purely in rugby terms that pain is a part of it and we don't want to just be throwing another broken rugby player on the bonfire what does the future hold i think uh it, it there, there was a bit of a business that grew up around it you know so you have your insurances and the private medical care that sort of get involved and and it is very interesting you say about that is what what sort of decision do you make and how informed are you and I think um, there's certainly been a lot of the evolution in in healthcare. So, for example, if we took back pain, if you just have your average person on the on the street has got horrendous horrendous back pain for whatever reason, not even ten years ago they'd be like, no, just lie about, don't do anything, let it heal up. Whereas now it's like, get moving, strengthen your back. You need to start lifting because you need to put some strength in there to protect your back, which will improve your back pain type thing, and. Uh, there was a re- I listened to the surgeon who treated Larson. Do you remember when Henrik Larson, the footballer, um, had a really horrendous oh, yeah. uh, leg injury? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he uh, he I treated him. I hated seeing the picture of that injury. Oh, I hate when people see a picture. Yeah, that's that, <laughs> horrendous. But he uh, like when he was rebuilding his leg, he was like, right, you can have all this surgery done, and we'll repair your ACL and all the things that had happened. But my my general opinion is that you'd be better off for health not having all that surgery done. So now you've got a decision to make is we do all of this surgery on you, but you can play another three years, which will allow you to earn another four to six million, which will look after you for the rest of your life while you're struggling with this horrendous, you know, piece of metal work that I'm going to put into your leg, you know, or you retire and leave it at that. And, and I think, um, Quite often, there's been a, a bit of a move to right. You're injured, ACL. Let's get you in under the knife, uh, eight months out, and then back back playing or whatever it is, without actually understanding a lot of the consequences and the the things around that. So, I think that it that, that is a really interesting conversation to have, and it's something that is definitely changing at the moment. Well, also the thing that the thing that fascinated me was I, I, I spoke to some some pain experts who you know who've made their life about pain and the interesting thing is like elite sport is phenomenal at dealing with acute pain you know that you know if there's some sort of trauma you know if someone breaks their leg on the pitch or has a a serious neck injury on the pitch you'd like to think that you know at the elite end of the sport dealt with phenomenally well and and no medical professional in rugby is I, i would say is deliberately trying to do anything wrong and i wouldn't say that there's anything wrong even just with this it's just where the current thinking is at this point in time so if you look at the idea of chronic pain and that was one of the main reasons i wanted to do that follow-up on on the painkillers piece we did um a while back was to look at the idea of chronic pain and go how you deal with that and a lot of it came down to the mental side of things is how, how do we firstly accept that it's a chronic pain is, is part of life as an athlete for a lot of athletes and how do you want to approach that going forward because and the thing that I kept seeing coming up and I spoke to some registered sports psychologists about this as well is the idea of firefighters the acute we'll deal with the acute you know when someone has a has a breakdown for example that's something you look at and you go that's a problem that needs to be sorted right now and there is a fix you know that western idea of illness fix let's sort it out right now so something acute happens or there's a some sort of intense incident, it's like, okay, cool, focus directly on that and we'll sort that out. But if you want to look at it long term, what are the issues with that? And how much of the chronic pain ties into psychology? Now, I'm imagining some people listening to that will go, oh, God, he's gone, he's gone down that avenue. 
I'm not necessarily saying that that's the one fix because we can change our approaches to how people work out with their S&C uh, throughout the week or which why it's why certain Olympic lifts have become the go-to lifts uh, throughout every level that there is or why are certain training practices the way they are no matter which country you go to, no matter what age you go to. Is it worth taking a look at these? It's all about having the conversation about the thing as a whole. And it, the thing is, is, again, I don't think it's anyone's fault or if there's any fault to be given, it's think in five years time, we might all look at that and go, geez, why are we doing it that way? Uh, that is definitely something that's evolving. And the conversations around pain is like, there's huge investigations into what is pain because sometimes they're struggling to find uh, mechanical processes for it. And like you say, it's very psychological and, and, you know, by dealing with some psychological stuff, you can do nothing else and solve someone's pain. It's, you know, it, that is a, a rapidly expanding area of, um, of sports psychology, sports medicine, just general medicine, to be fair. But um, so I think uh, you, you, have, you start off with this medicalization um, because it's an obvious thing. People um, are getting injured. They have the painkillers. And then we st- this is where it sort of starts to slide into the, the performance enhancing bit. So where this gets slightly dodgy would be around therapeutic use exemptions. And that's where it starts to travel off into into the performance enhancing side of things. So uh, people might need to take a, a, a banned drug for a medical condition they've got. And they're allowed to do that if they have a therapeutic use exemption, which allows them to take that. So if they were to get tested, that'd be fine. And um, there was there were a few issues in rugby around this, weren't there, where people yeah. were pinged for things. And there was, there was some questions about whether or not that athlete was as ill as they as they were saying, to be able to take or to, to have to take that drug, which also happens not only was resolving that tendon issue they had, but was could definitely provide some other benefits to them that were above and beyond that. Okay, well, yeah, the thing with with therapeutic use exemption is, and certainly if you look at the headlines from other sports at the moment, and you know the level of scrutiny and faith that we can have in in, in other sports of those who are meant to be looking after the athletes you'd like to you'd hope and and, and certainly if it wasn't the case it, it must be going forward that there's a level of scrutiny and a level of professional care that is expected and certainly one of the things that we're uh, certainly something I'm keen to look at in the future is certainly further down the levels of professional sport where if if there's any risk of corners being cut, why has that happened, particularly at a time of precarious finances? When you look at the powerhouses uh, and you look at therapeutic use exemption, no one in the sport deserves, needs more scrutiny and there should be, every finer detail should, should be done and it shouldn't be, one of the things that's levelled at rugby a lot is that no matter how far we've come, there are still really amateur elements of it. You'd like to be able to say that in all elite sport uh, that there is a checklist of things that are done properly and that can be verified. And something like that with therapeutic use, you'd you'd hope that there's some sort of well, I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking at. Scrutiny scrutiny I've used about twenty-five times there, but the idea that there's there's something being scrutinized, there's something being looked at regularly now one of the biggest problems we've got and it's it's funny when we talked earlier about performance enhancing drugs outright outright use of performance enhancing drug one of the things that we find we keep finding is that there's a specific menu available to drug to certain unions or in other sports governing other sports governing bodies that they can afford to pay for how the volume that they can afford to to carry out and how widespread it is so is this test is this testing you're talking about yes So when you look at that and you go, actually, this this professional union can only afford this menu of tests this often for this level of athletes for this number of times throughout a season, you realise that it might not be hitting the standards you want, but that's because that's the pot that's available. So oftentimes when we talk about, and you, you I think you might have mentioned or you're worth alluding to other sports and the sort of era that we're living in, <clears throat> where some people will say, I am the most tested athlete of all time in my, you know, you'll see some players on, in some sport on a circuit going, oh, I'm always getting tested. Well, you should be because you're at the top of your game there and you're absolutely crushing all of these other athletes. You need to be uh, prepared to do that. 
and you know shouldn't be using your platform to moan about it probably and it's oh it's always telling when you see the athletes who are in that position who are happy about it and are like yeah cool i'm not just talking the talk here when i say we all want clean sport and when you look at the olympic movement and you see people going we all want clean sports like cool let's back that up then the problem is is that it's a pretty small pot that a lot of unions have got and when you think of everything else that they're dealing with and i'm not making excuses for them here because it probably means that we have to have a discussion about what it is that we truly value and what it is that we want to put our money into and um at the moment we're looking at the aftercare of athletes is that something that we want to to be helping out with we're looking at the the level of testing that they get are we putting enough money towards that if we want to say that we've got clean sport when we're looking at Jesus, just off the top of my head here, if we're looking at how much money you want to put towards research, for example, what are you doing that? Where's that money going? How much are you willing to put towards that? Is that, you know, how does that compare to the marketing budget that you've got for your division? And, and where are the sacrifices being made? There's all conversations that we have to be having about sport now, because at the moment, you know, there we can flick on social media. And the amount of things that we're complaining about, and you look through the amount of things where people go, this is a disgrace, this needs to be sorted out right now. Okay, cool. That's probably the case, but also, do we value that more than we value the ongoing discussion about brain injury? Or how much do we value that about the ongoing discussion about clean sport and where we want that to go? And it's funny, the, the give and take that you have to have with that. It's There's no easy answer, and one of the worst things about my profession is that people like me can say stuff like that and then not offer a solution. So, all we want to do is keep the discussion going about a lot of that. Yeah, I I think um, one of the big questions that that sort of brings to me is that because it's obviously massively important and it costs a lot of money, you can immediately see that when you're having to start doing testing of uh, of athlete samples and all of the huge amount of drugs they could be testing for. But But what it sort of comes down to, to me, the question I would then have is, do you think there's a genuine appetite at the top level to really be pushing hard to 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 catch people in order to put other people off of it? And and the reason I say that is I, I, I wouldn't say this in terms of rugby, but there are definitely other sports where tests and things have been swept under the carpet. You mean you look at Lance Armstrong? You know, there were some very well documented out there where people have, have talked about that. Do you think um, do you think there's a there's a, a genuine appetite in in rugby to to be able to catch um, to catch people that are using not only great so the TUEs would be like a grey area that could be exploited and then the out, outright you know cheating which is they're taking drugs specifically to, to improve their performance uh, yeah is there a genuine appetite I bloody hope so this is the, the short answer to that I I, I couldn't uh, pretend to talk about all the powers that be but you'd hope so um and certainly one of the things that you keep now you use the words um you use the words catching and i think that's an apt word to use because for all the details i gave there but also just the, the anti-doping landscape in general always going to be playing catch up you know forever will be behind those that want to create and sell and use performance enhancing drugs you know, the, mo the 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 benefits are so vast, and the the pool of wealth available to anyone that wants to exploit that is so vast that there's always going to be a step behind. So the genuine appetite, you bloody hope so. There better be. And what you want to see is, you know, and it's often used as a stick to beat a sport where you say all these failed tests. Well, if that if you're going to use that as evidence that there is doping then firstly celebrate the fact that there's an appetite to catch them and then demand that there's increased increased exposure, uh, there's increased um, resource available to catch further cheats. And But again, it comes down to, and so that would be my answer to that first off. But secondly, the important thing is having increased discussion about it, having increased contextual and detailed discussion about it and looking at the motivations again of why and how and seeing if there's seeing if there's a, a way forward where you can explore how to try and cut it off at the pass because we spend so long trying to find cures for things sometimes it's better to find prevention isn't it surely that's got to be a way of pre preparing for it 
absolutely and and i think there's there's a lot there's a lot of things that are sort of conducive to that element in rugby there's obviously number one been quite a big influx of money coming into rugby and a lot of the the big tournaments and and no one ever looks at the sort of the mid-level or the journeyman they're always looking to the top aren't they and you know there's there's more money available to the very top level players in the sport not only while they're playing but afterwards with their endorsements and that but also there was always that thing and I've got to be honest I've never really actually heard anyone say it but I've heard a lot of people say that they've been told it about you need to be or you would have made it but you just need to be bigger or like when, when they're younger kids you need to be bigger and you sort of see that um as well there's a cultural thing South Africa play a very physical brand of rugby plus there's a, a very sort of uh, a very size dominated culture just generally in South Africa and then you find out there was a little while ago that um I think it was at Craven Week there was quite a few kids like an unbelievable amount of kids that got popped uh, on tests out there and so it's it's trying to target those things to 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 cut that off before it become becomes a slippery slope for them to start going down that they're taking more and more supplements. See, because one of the things I suppose is that you, as a kid, is like right, you're too small, you need to bulk up. I'll take some supplements, but then they take t- supplements that aren't batch tested and end up with a, a, an adverse result off of that, or that isn't quite cutting the mustard for them, and they need something a bit stronger because they're not putting on the size as quick as they'd want. So is, it, is that what you're sort of talking about when you're trying to prevention rather than cure? Well, if you look at a, a case, uh, if you look at cases of, of younger younger kids going, firstly, you go, right, do we want to be, is it a, is it a stage where you want to be catching these ki- kids red-handed at the age of 16 taking drugs? If that's what you want to do, then then you seriously have to talk to yourself about why it's anyone that young is wanting to try and alter their physiology at that age. And yet, I, education is massive. But, you know, if you look at, for example, there's studies done in South Africa, I believe, where they looked at, and I don't believe it was purely sport, it might have just been in general, the amount of kids, um, high school kids, that were wanted to take uh, certain supplementation to increase their size and muscularity example and one of the things that kept coming back to was aesthetics now why is that such an imperative and where does that tie and if you put that back into the rugby context if that is the case then why is that so important to them why do those two things uh, marry together in a lifestyle why is that beneficial why do we see that as so beneficial why is that of value to coaches is it of value to coaches what is the part of this the sort of construct of a sport. Well, you know, at the end of the day, it's a sport. Why is this, Why do these kids, if they do, want to alter their life to be able to fit into it? Is have we made the sport so life and death that this is this is the only way that they can realise who they are by achieving this? And also, you know, I'm wary of just going putting up one country as an example. Or and this comes back to what I was talking about earlier as well. Is however much there's truth in any of that mythos how important is the myth of this and do we need to investigate it further and one of the things one of the i think a harmful thing that we keep coming back to and this is just my opinion is when we talk about doping in sport and it's not just in in rugby but in other disciplines is someone becomes the boogeyman that see they are they're the bad guys and everyone else is on a moral superior high ground looking down on them because firstly now, it's nonsensical to say that uh, uh, as it is, but also why are we clumping every sport together in one as a nation? Why are we clumping every athlete in that sport together as one? You know, there's there's layers to all of it and, you know, it's a great thing that we celebrate the whistleblowers that come out and you've got, got to protect them at all costs as well. I, d- I don't understand the... the the moral moral relativism, I don't know if that's the right phrase, but the way in, in which some people also go, well, sure, the whistleblowers, they've helped us pull down X, Y, Z, but also, you know, they helped make that system, so they're the bad guys, so we shouldn't listen to them. You know, you've got to take what comes what comes to you in this fight, I suppose, really. And But to go back to the original question, I, I, I warned you I would go off on tangents. Good. No, we like tangents. Go for it. Is that, uh, yeah the education side of things and just having adult discussions about it and actually if we're going to say that this is an issue for kids then treat them with a bit of respect and talk to them the way that they, they should be so they're involved in this discussion and not just talked about 
if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So uh, you said that I think one of the things that's important is that you said that you do a feature in a magazine every month about clean sport, and so you are actually putting stuff well, in there. It's not. It's not actually about clean sport. It's about we we have a, a nutritionist who's worked in rugby and who um, currently works for the the FA. So he works works in, at the very top end of football. Uh, you know, does studies after studies isn't deeply involved in the world of elite sport works with some professional boxers as well and he will give advice uh, you know on, on around a certain topic every month in our area called boot camp and we'll have some exercise you know i wouldn't say it's the most in-depth you know we're, we're not going to be competing with a magazine that's exactly about exercise and or coaching um in, th in those elements but you'd like to think that there's just a little messages in that that will drip feed every so often so there are Things that he keeps coming back to every so often. One of which is uh, to look for to look for uh, supplement. If you're going to use supplements, for example, make sure that they're from reputable reputable companies that have this stamp of approval on them, and and hammering that as often as possible. But also just certain lifestyle things, and and you know always look to diet first before supplementation if possible. That kind of thing. Um, we'll put some stuff in the show notes. So uh, one of the things you're talking about there is informed sports. So there's a website that you can go on and you can check a supplement. So th yeah. there's, there's very basic things that people don't know, you know, that, um, and this is, this is definitely happened is this is not a myth is that some supplement companies will be mixing up things that have got banned substances in them. Yeah. They will then chuck in a load of whey protein and it will be contaminated. And so the reputable companies batch test. So they test every single batch of their supplements they put out. And uh, one of the things I say to kids is one, a reasonably easy way to work that out is if, if a supplement company sponsor a pro or premiership rugby team, for example, they have to, they have to sign up that they're going to batch test. Otherwise they won't be allowed to be a sponsor. So a very simple way without looking on the website is, you know, if there's a supplement company that sponsor a premiership team, then then they're more likely to be reputable. But but we'll put some stuff on there uh, yeah. about about things that people can do. And on that as well, it's like yeah, if you really want to go deep into it, you can check batch numbers and that kind of thing. But also uh, that idea of I think it's it's this discussion that we've had here and there, and the the industry that's grown up around it. And um, I don't want to seem at any point like I'm against <laughs> against certain practices or, or aesthetics or anything it was just a, a point i was making about the the psychology behind a lot of this but also um the idea is there should be as much scrutiny and discussion about this as possible because as we go forward there's discussions to be had and it comes back to what we're looking at with painkillers and painkiller uses is cbd and the use of uh, certain products and and where that fits in and Informed sport, cool, yeah, great, and also what the long-term benefits of that are. Because you speak to athletes, I've spoken to some athletes who will say, I don't want to use painkillers, I want to use CBD. And that's great. What some people don't like, and I sort of got a bit of friction on this, is if someone goes, yeah, well, I'm sick of hearing that the RFU's nutritionist won't let players use CBD or promote CBD on, on their time because... Um, because they say X, Y, Z, and I don't believe that's right. Whereas one of the things we found was you speak to those who work in the industry and want to make money from the product, from cannabis-based products, for example, and go, there's a woeful lack of research done on athletes and the use of CBD. And whilst it might be clear to use on one event, you know, what is the, all the, all the different chemicals, all the different parts, parts that make it up, might be a very low level but is the accumulation over time where you could potentially fail a test later can we do more research into that can we do more research into the fact that perhaps you know just whether or not it's a placebo effect or not there needs to be much more done across the board whereas the industry is sort of taking off as a whole and i'm not saying that you know it could all come out that these are fantastic to use but again it's about having the discussion about it and it's Again, I think it's important that athletes need to be at the forefront of discussions of that about that, and it's it's important to have it now. And debate is a healthy thing to have all that. And so it's it's one of those things where we're gonna all these subjects that we've talked about are gonna have to be come back to again and again and again and again because things are the landscape is constantly changing, the science is constantly changing, the tastes are constantly changing, the demands of the sport are constantly changing, and also it's just really healthy to just have constantly updated conversations, debate if you want about all these things.
I totally agree. I I totally agree. And um, I think that there's some good things happening through academies because a lot of the academies are are using proper nutritionists to get message out, which diffuses out into the wider community. So those kids go back to their school, talk to people about stuff. One thing I just anecdotally I noticed was after the the first lockdown, was a lot of the kids that I'd I'd speak to last summer they were asking me questions that I didn't generally get asked about training. And I was like, why, why are you asking me about that? Why are you asking me about that exercise? Why do you specific? And a lot of it was about getting bigger. I was like, what have you been doing through lockdown? And, and a lot of them have just been sat there on Instagram and social media. And so many of those, those images and so many of the things that have been pushed are very, very highly doctored. So, I mean, that's, that's like a cultural influence There's nothing even necessary to do with sport. And you can see the way that exactly what you said, things develop so quickly in in our society with in the age of the internet that we have to keep revisiting this to find out what's happening but but one question i wanted to ask you was i mean because this is something that's sort of played over in my mind and I, you know when i look at it i just i it it beggars belief to me that it goes on in pro sport that that doping sort of happens um but but how widespread do you think it is in rugby at the elite end or in general uh well let's go both well, at the elite end, the first of all, at the elite end. I mean, it'd be naive to say that there isn't any. Um, but going back to what we said previously about the the idea of some grand conspiracy, I, I genuinely don't think that's the case. If and now that's uh, I'm one of these adults who's happy to change his mind or be have his mind changed uh, if if someone gives me something. So you know, I wouldn't say that that's steadfast. I'd just be I'd I'd be surprised, but I would understand if if something anything came out around that. It's just that in my experiences, I just and out of respect to a lot of the medical professionals that we speak to, it's it, you know it would have to be some real shadowy stuff to go on and on an industrial level, and you know the amount of these sporting organisations, there are so many people that would have to be involved with the players on a day-to-day basis to know if there was anything like that that was planned. You'd, you'd hope there are stop gaps within that. However, that being said, it'd be naive to say that there are not individuals within elite sport who have, of their, of their own volition, taken steps to try and improve their physicality or their, or their, what's the word I'm looking for? Their industry on the pitch or you know to aid their recovery from and that's the thing that actually you know when we talk about um when we talk about sport in general we talk about performance enhancing drugs the word that you keep hearing all the time even in 2021 is steroids and um we think that it's the only ever going to be used to be as big physically massive as possible or to be as fast as possible for some reason, still in 2021, that's the way we, we look at these things. Whereas a large part of what you're looking at is in certain disciplines in other sports, it helps you to be able to recover better or to be able to go back on the practice green uh, field, whatever, and repetitively do something over and over and over and over and over and over and over again because that's how you get really bloody good at something. Or to increase your engine so that you're at a stage where, okay, it's not just being able to climb Mount Vaughan 2 as quickly as possible and not break a sweat. Also, it's being able to clock up the kilometres doing the nitty-gritty on a field uh, over long periods of time, five or six times in a month. You know, that's so... Firstly, we need to address how we, how we talk about these things. So it would be naive to say that there's no one looking for that, that themselves. But again, that's where it probably comes down to an individual level. However... Again, that's where you want as much scrutiny as possible. And if you can increase the menu of testing or the menu of educational programs around this, or to you know a campaign to or or to crack down in any way, all for it, all for it. And at an amateur level, the the second part of this is you look at the the number of failed tests that we'll see, and it makes headlines whenever you see someone fails a drug test, and oftentimes. You know, the vast, 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 major, overwhelming majority of the times it's from the amateur game or from lower down the leagues. So that's the case of addressing why is that? And certainly that is on an individual basis because 
there ain't no oftentimes there ain't no grand grand conspiracy. There's no huge machinery down there where everyone is operating on a professional capacity. These guys have got day jobs or yeah, part time jobs or are students or or just just out of school. And that again comes back to the very important piece of addressing the cultural reasons behind it and and it's assessing why it is what preventative measures can we take, but also just talking to people why like it, it, genuinely it's interesting to me why and the thing is is i don't and in fact this is a failing on my part and uh, many other people's parts when we have all this it's a nice headline and it makes a good story and it's interesting to look uh, to look at briefly and go that rugby eh? that rugby what's it all about um but actually talking to these individuals way after the fact and addressing why and it's, maybe that's something for us to do in the future is to go is to track down some people if they're comfortable talking about it and share their experiences but also the motivations behind it because surely that's got to be pretty powerful actually massively i think um that that is the the, the huge uh, area for them to look at if they if the the powers that be are serious about sort of addressing this issue i think um it always surprises me some of the myths that myths that I hear or things that people say to me about performance enhancing drugs or steroids. It's like, my, you know, that's stuff that was blown away 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, you should know this. You know, it's things that I think that are fairly simple, but that the average Joe public don't know about. And I think some of that comes back to what you said uh, earlier is that we need to keep revisiting this and we need to find out what 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 is being said, what do people believe, what is the truth, and, and what can we... And the thing is, is I'm I'm happy to hold my hands up. If I've got anything wrong in the past, or I've approached anything in the wrong way in the past, or if someone listens to me and speaks, uh, listens to me speaking here and goes, "That guy's talking absolute bollocks," I'm come, you know, approach me, you know, don't don't, don't buzz me up on Twitter or whatever. But you know, uh, people can find my details and um, message me directly if they want to and and, and talk about things in depth because I'm happy. I, I want to learn more. I want to be better at talking about this. I want to cover it in a more understanding way. And it's, you know, we shouldn't just be standing on a soapbox and moralizing. You know, if someone wants to give me different aspects of this, I think it's only fair. And that's, again, going back to what Rugby World does with a lot of this. I think it's important to have as many adult discussions about these issues as possible. But it's the discussion. You know, it shouldn't just be us projecting out. If people want to come back and have it, you know, Dialectic is something that we seem to have lost in that the idea of two ideas coming, the idea of two opposing views coming together and finding, if not compromise, a different way of thinking or a new avenue. And it's, it'd be great if we can have this more and more and when we talk about serious issues in sport rather than just pointing the finger and shouting about something. And it's, again, always open if people want to talk about this or subject, it doesn't even have to be these subjects. If it's something that people feel is underreported and important to sport, we've got to be talking about it. I think that's what's always impressed me about your writing is the is the the number of people you speak to, the breadth of sources that you go to, and the the depth that you go into with that. So um, that's that's been fascinating. And how can people get hold of if they, if they want to learn a little bit more or drop drop some information your way? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, if, if so, anyone wants to contact me directly, they can. Well, firstly, you know, if, if you want to look back on anything that we've done, uh, you know, rugbyworld.com is a good place to start. Or if you get the magazine, there's um, all sorts of contact details for us in that magazine, uh, company email addresses, that kind of thing. If you want to contact me directly, people can get hold of me at, uh, if you find me on, if you track me down on Twitter, I'll make my uh, direct messages are open to anyone that wants to come and <clears throat> send me a message. I'll happily check those out. Or, you know, someone can try and track down my email address, alan.dimmick at futurenet.com futurenet.com yeah that's the one I'll not make it futurenet.com and uh, they can should I say it a third time uh, you know and, and hit me up on any of this because you know I'm not perfect and these are complex subjects and if anything wants to be covered or people feel is underreported happy to, to have a, a look at it and see what the situation is Perfect. Well, uh, like I say, well, if um, if people want to look in the show notes, I'll put links so they're hyperlinks so they can click onto the painkiller piece, the doping piece, the CBD stuff that you were talking about. We'll link to all of that, and people can people can find that. But thanks ever so much because that was a fascinating uh, a chat around uh, what's a very nuanced and potentially thorny subject. Yeah, I feel like I've been chasing my tail, so hopefully there's some stuff in there that was interesting. No, it's, it's good, mate. It's brilliant, fantastic. Thanks very much. No problem.